We're going to read from God's Word. And uh, we're going to read from Acts chapter 27. We're going to try and read, we're going to read most of it, okay? We're going to read from, from verse 13 through to verse 44 this morning. I actually asked three different people to read this morning. All three people said, oh, no, I don't want to do it. So uh, you're going to have to stick with me this morning. So that's Acts chapter 27, verses 13 to 44. And this is God's word. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor, and they sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm, and it could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it, and we were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Coda, we were hardly able to to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes around the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and they let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and he said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who seal with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and they let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and you've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and he began to eat. They were all encouraged and they ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, They lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they let them into the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and they made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and it ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. 
He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard, overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or in other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. And so it is that we are nearly, very nearly at the end of the book of Acts. And from the numerous trials and court scenes and judges and rulers and the endless legal and personal arguments that have filled the last number of chapters of Acts that we've made our way through, today we land in the next stage on Paul's journey to Rome. A number of years ago, I spent some time in Kenya. And we were out working with a missionary who was actually a farmer from rural Northern Ireland, okay? And he was, he was perfect for the work that was going on in this part of Kenya. He was from an agricultural background, and the work that he did primarily on the ground there in Kenya was agricultural. So they did these kind of irrigation projects. They grew their own vegetables and food and all of that sort of stuff so that they could both feed themselves and sell food so that they could bring money into the area. He was incredible, okay? Uh, But also with that came that kind of rural Northern Irish thing, right? A bit like Caleb Scott of being unflappable, right? Uh, There's this like unflappable, like dry kind of sense of humor that came along with the way that he was, okay? Uh, He he wouldn't like exaggerate things. He, He was very kind of just told it as it was. That was kind of his way. And so one night we're sitting around a fire. We're talking about his experiences of Kenya, you know, the people, what he'd seen God do. And while he's sharing about this stuff, he's, he's laughing. And in the middle of it, just this like throwaway comment in the middle of a sentence says, I, and you know, of course that was, you know, around a short time after I had the plane crash. And then he just kept going. And I'm like, what? Like hold the flipping phones. You've been in a plane crash, right? Like I'm like, never mind the rest of any of these stories. I want to hear about the plane crash. Like where did this happen? How did you survive? What on earth, right? And then he's like, anyways. And he just goes on, right? He doesn't, he's not, he's not bothered at all by the fact that he's been in a plane crash. Like if that had been me, you never would have, I mean, every sermon I would have found a way to bring it back round to when I was in the plane crash, you know, I would have brought it round, right? I never would have heard the end of it. But to Derek, just like a small detail in his life. Breathtaking. And in lots of ways, we get the same thing in the life of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, which was written actually before the book of the Acts, okay? In 2 Corinthians 11, he'll write, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. That's like the equivalent of being in three plane crashes in that day. Three times I was shipwrecked. Like, hold the phones, Paul. You survived three shipwrecks, like never mind the rest of the stuff amongst the planted churches, leaders raised, cities changed, lives transformed, his own included. There it is, three times he was shipwrecked. And yet to Paul, it's just another small detail in his life. And Acts 27 is all about a shipwreck. I'm sure you've already gathered that, right? In many ways, this period of the book of Acts is kind of like the world's wildest ever film script, right? Like, it's crazy, okay? We've had courtroom drama, trials, he was nearly flogged, and then he got away with it, with like, you know, the drama admission, but I'm Roman. You know, like, stop, you know, 
cut to black next episode, right? Uh, prison for two years without charge. And now he's shipwrecked, right? On top of all that. And to make it even crazier, if you scroll down in your Bible to the start of Acts 28, it starts with him being bitten by a snake, right? It's like this never-ending, bonkers drama. The only thing crazier than the drama in his life is that the gospel and Paul would continually and specifically make their way to Rome. Is that through all of that madness, all of the stuff, which would be enough to be kind of the major features of just about any of our lives, through it all, the gospel still makes its way to Rome as the Lord told him it would. And the Rome of the day, okay, it was the magnet of the whole world. It drew the whole world to it. As one commentator writes, Rome presided magisterially over the known world. From it came roads that made the world accessible. Governance, law, peace, known as the Pax Romana. To a great many people of the time, Rome was the place that the great blessings of the world flowed from. Rome. And yet, it wasn't for that reason that Paul made his way there. That's why most people made their way to Rome, but not Paul. He wasn't being drawn to it like some fledgling musician getting drawn to London to make it, in inverted commas. Something happened to him. Thinking way back, remember Acts 19, in the middle of a riot going on around his life, right? A literal riot taking place. In the middle of it all, Paul says, I must also see Rome. Something unearthed in him then. And in that moment, something evidently unearthed in him that was also in the heart of God. And ever since, the purposes of God had prevailed so that he would get this far. And so the story starts, okay? We didn't read the first 12 verses, okay? But the story starts with him beginning his travel by sea from Caesarea to Rome, okay? That's where he was when we last stopped off, kind of finishing off that kind of court case with Agrippa and all of that sort of stuff, okay? So he's trying to get from Caesarea to Rome. And the thing about this is that the Jews just were not a seafaring people. There were various peoples of the time that were, the Jews weren't dead, right? They didn't really like the sea in lots of ways. To them, the sea was a dangerous place, okay? It was a dark place, even though the Jewish people acknowledged that the God that they believed in was the God of heaven and earth, right? And that included the sea. The sea was always something that terrified them. Shipwreck stories were also common in the time, not just in historical accounts, right? Like literally ships got wrecked all the time, but also kind of the fascination with the sea that would bleed into their storytelling and the arts and drama and theater and all of that sort of stuff. It was another hurdle to get over, another danger or trial to overcome on the way to the eventual glory of a hero. Homer's Odyssey, for example, one of the most famous works of that time, an ancient Greek epic, it features a shipwreck storyline. It was common in the time. So is this just another story, right? If kind of shipwreck narratives were a thing, is this just what this is? Or was it something else? Well, not likely. Hopefully, as we made our way through the passage, you were able to sort of see one of the outstanding features of Acts 27, which is detail. Detail. The way the shipwreck is recounted, look through it again. Look at the detail of the way that it is recounted. We get 
Things like how many people there were, who they were, names, ports, even given the slang names for the ports, weather conditions in keeping with seasonal records of weather conditions and prevailing winds, the actions of the crew in the storm as they take emergency action one after another. It is detail on top of detail on top of detail. One historian, Thomas Walker, wrote, there is no such detailed record of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature. In other words, what am I saying? I'm trying to tell you that Luke was there. Luke, who wrote Acts, he was there with Paul. Otherwise, how on earth do you get all the detail? Luke was there. He was an eyewitness. He saw it all. And so off they sailed. And the early part of Acts 27, it gives us some of the detail, okay? Paul is sailing with other prisoners for Rome. This is very likely a grain ship, okay? Rome needed grain desperately, and the great bulk of that grain came from Egypt. And by the time they were sailing, the weather is beginning to turn, okay? Sailing started to get dangerous in the Mediterranean in mid-September, and normally it was stopped altogether by mid-November. This is already very likely October. So it's risky business by the time... They get to see. But Rome needed grain. And so it wasn't uncommon for them to risk ships being at sea because they needed the grain more than the people that they might lose to shipwreck. So they're sailing. And the storm comes. And that's the context for Acts 27. And so what is in this, in a sense, for us today? Well, I think there's probably three things we can learn from how Paul conducts himself in the storm. Lots of us have felt like our lives have been in a storm, haven't we? Maybe you feel like you're in one right now, tossed and turned, not sure which way is up and down, not sure where you're going, not sure how you're putting the pieces of your life together as it's maybe falling apart through one thing or another, or just COVID and the way the world has been, or the cost of living crisis as we look at it right now, or the turbulence of the world as we look further down the road. A storm feels common for us. So what can we learn? Well, three things. One, Paul's commitment to courage. Two, his commitment to each other. And three, his commitment to be sustained. The first of those is the commitment to courage. So the storm rolls in, okay? And the major feature is it's bad. There's that part where it says we couldn't see that it was day or night. So it's one of those storms, you know, that just makes everything dark, right? We had one of those for about 15 minutes on like Friday afternoon, right? About four o'clock, you sort of looked outside and you were like, what the heck? And then it passed and the sun came out. Well, the sun never came out for ages, right? One of those storms. So the crew takes the usual evasive action that would be common at the time to try to save the boat and save their lives. They secure the ship by tying ropes around the bow. They lower the sea anchor probably the main sail. They get rid of the cargo and the tackle. They're trying to make the boat lighter so that it doesn't crash into the rocks, right? They do all the stuff, but they're in it now. And in many ways, events are now beyond their control. And this is what it says in verses 21 to 26. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and he said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of, of God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. 
So it's an interesting thing that perhaps Paul was the most experienced sailor on board, okay? One scholar worked his way through Acts, and he counted throughout the book that Luke records that Paul took no less than 12 journeys by sea throughout the book, and those 12 journeys would total around 3,000 miles by sea, which is a huge number in that time. He knew the drill. He knew what it was like to be in bad weather and all of that stuff. And as the most experienced person, he'd already tried in verse 10, if you look back there, looking at the weather and at that time of year to tell them not to seal in the first place. But in the end of the day, he's a prisoner. Why is anyone going to listen to the prisoner, right? You're going to listen to the actual sealers who are saying, no, 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 we're good. We'll go to sea. We'll go to sea. Paul says, don't go to sea. It's going to be a disaster. They don't listen. So now it feels like he can't help himself but do that thing, right? He's straight into it. I told you so, right? If you'd listened to me, we wouldn't have got into this mess in the first place, right? Now, I'm not sure if that buys you respect or if that makes you the most annoying person on board, right? Either one or other has taken place, but he's pulled, he's pulled that trigger, right? He's went there. If you'd listened to me, it wouldn't have worked out like this. But now we're here. Basically, that's the start of what he says. And the moment is desperate. Verse 20, just right before that little passage that I read there, it said this, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. We gave up all hope. None of the I told you so's in the world were going to change the fact that we gave up all hope. We have to remember how dangerous the sea was, how dangerous the sea is, and how much those of the time, particularly Jews, thought of the sea as a place of death and danger. The reality is you're in a small boat adrift in a huge ocean in the middle of a storm. We give up all hope. There is nowhere to hide. There is no hope of rescue. There is no RNLI, lifeboat service, Coast Guard, Navy. There's none of that in those days. We give up all hope. And then Paul speaks. And it's one of the wonders of the power of God's word in the life of someone who is willing to speak, willing to stand, willing to do what he feels God has him for, that as he speaks... In this moment where they have all given all given up all hope, the prisoner becomes the captain. He's a prisoner. But all of a sudden, his words are the most important words on the ship. In the most desperate of places, his is the, vo- the voice that promises to get them through it. Paul's vision is the turning point in this passage. Last night, an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. God has graciously given you the lives of all who seal with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. The heart of this word, this message that he got was this word courage. He wants them to commit to courage. Lots of other translations will translate it as take heart rather than courage. You can use either word, okay? But he says it twice in three verses. Man, you've given up, but take heart. Why? Ultimately, you have to ask yourself, why? They haven't seen daylight 
nor good weather for days at this point. They're still adrift on a small boat in a huge ocean in a big storm, right? There's no possible human reason to be in any way hopeful about their circumstances looking out from where they are in that moment. So what was it? So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Paul's courage, the courage that calls them to take heart, is not rooted in himself. It's not rooted in his circumstances. It's rooted in God's word to him. It's rooted in his trust. It's rooted in his faith. This is the textbook definition of faith. Elton Trueblood, he defined faith as trust without reservation. Here it is. Small boat, big ocean, bad storm. We're going to be okay. Why? Because my God told me so. This is trust without reservation. Trust holding nothing back. Trust without the need for anything else. Trust beyond circumstances. Courage that came from a trust in what God said and that everything will play out as he says. Why? Because he said it. As we reflect back in these last chapters of Acts, right, we can see time and time and time again how God revealed himself to Paul and promised to get him where he said he would get him to, right, and where he had him to go next. Again and again, God seems to show up and speak to him, right, in these kind of moments where, like, this could go either way. God says, it's okay, we're going to get you to the next thing because we're going to get you to Rome, right? And it happens again and again. And so in some ways, Paul could look back in his life and know that God had been by his side, couldn't he? Like, if that's you or I, you might look and go, well, look, God showed up here and here and here and here. And so I know he'll show up here in the storm. I mean, no, you might think that, but in reality, if this is us, most of us have known God show up in our lives at points along the way, haven't we? We've known his faithfulness. We've known his goodness. We've known his truth. We've known his presence with us through thick and thin. We have known God's work in our lives. And yet if this is us, I have to suggest that very often the temptation in our lives would be to look at the circumstances that he was still living in and think, I know you spoke to me, Lord, but to be honest, I'd just rather be in freedom, right? I don't want to be a prisoner anymore. I'd just rather not have been through courts and trials. I'd rather not have been in prison for two years. I'd rather not be on this ship. I'd rather not be in the middle of the storm. Wouldn't we? We wouldn't just look back and say, because you got me this far, I know you'll get me through. Most of us would go, why am I here, Lord? Get me out of the storm that I'm in. A.J. Swoboda would write, can I invite you to trust in God? And at the same time, be cautious about equating what that trust is going to get you in this life. Paul was trusting in the middle of a storm. And this is the challenge of our lives, isn't it? As we try to commit our lives towards courage, the test is very often that it's much easier to commit our lives towards convenience, isn't it? See, we can commit to courage or we can commit to convenience, If we're honest with ourselves, so often in life we have a trust in God plus, right? It's not like we we don't just put all our faith in God. It's I put my faith in God if if he does this or if he does that. In other words, it comes with conditions. It's Jesus, I trust you with my stuff, my future, my sin, the storm. If you'll do this or if you'll do that, it's trust in God plus, isn't it? If I get the job or if you come through for me on the relationship or the health of a loved one, or so on, and so on, and so on. Paul's faith was trust without reservation. The great philosopher Taylor Swift, 
dropped this gem in the last week as she received her honorary degree from the University of New York. And it pretty much sums it up for lots of us in our lives. She said this, I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now and how to act in order to get to where you want to go. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. Paul says, it's not up to you. It's not up to you. Where you get and where you're going, if you make it through the storms that will rage in your own life, it's not up to you. It's about trust without reservation in the one who it is up to. Your future, your past, the storm that you're in, it's not up to you. And if you let him, And if you trust him, take heart for whatever you're walking through because God's word and way had seen Paul through trials, suffering and wreck of every kind. And he would see you through yours too. First thing in the storm is a commitment to courage. The second is a commitment to each other. We read on in verses 27 to 32. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again, found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we'd be dashed on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern, prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower more anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay from the ship you cannot be saved so the soldiers cut the ropes and they held the lifeboat and they let it drift away i played rugby when i was at university you know that probably comes as a shock to most of you you know i look like a rugby playing type right but i played for malone under 20s and our team was stellar at the time right absolutely stellar side and uh, we got to the under 20 shield final okay where we were playing in stonians i hate in stonians right Sorry, I was a BRA boy. Inst is like the worst place on earth. But anyway, right? We were playing Instonians, right? And our team had one player who was head and shoulders better than everybody else. Played Ulster schools, was in an Ulster training contract. He was way better than everybody else, right? He was brilliant. Uh, And in lots of ways, he had carried us to the final, right? And so we were confident. We knew we were better than them. We knew we were going to beat them in the final. We knew we should win. So the game kicks off. About 10 minutes in, we are well on top. Like, we're way better than them. And then, for some unknown reason to any of us, he loses it. Runs Our best player runs 50, like 50 meters up a pitch and punches someone in the head while he's on the ground, right? Immediately gets sent off, right? So 70 minutes in, we're now down... We're now down to 14 men. Our best player has been sent off, right? And as it happens, our whole team's heads drop. It's like one guy walks and the team gave up, right? We got beaten in the end by Estonians. I still haven't got over it, right? But so much of our team had been built around Johnny and how brilliant he was rather than how strong we were together. And Paul has this moment in the ship, right? He's had this word from the Lord, but the word was that they would all be saved. Not just him, not just the good people, not just one or two people. They would all be saved. But that that would be easier said than done, right? They've been adrift at sea now for more than two weeks, right? A fortnight since they'd known either since they'd known shelter, a fortnight of storm conditions, and for all of them, whoever they were, to be considering their lives, their life choices, what you know, if I'm going to die here, all of that sort of stuff, right? They think it's the end. 
And so the word comes that they're going to be saved, and it seemed impossible, right? Like there was absolutely no good reason, apart from this one guy on board who seems to think that his God says we're going to be okay, right? There's no reason for the rest of them to have hope. The storm kept raging, and they continued to be all alone in a small boat at sea. And so the group does what most groups do, right? If you've ever watched reality TV, you'll know that in like group projects, things, they begin to fragment, don't they? And each of them begins to consider, well, what could I do to get out of this, okay? And so they start to look around. They take a look at each other, take a look at what they could do with their own hands. This is a ragtag group of people. There are 276 of them in total, okay? Some of them were the ship's crew. They were the ones obviously responsible for sailing the ship. Some of them were soldiers, And at the time, the soldiers were really in charge. Rome kind of commissioned individual boat owners to sail, right? So Rome kind of insured them. If the boat was lost, Rome would repay them for the boat. But it was like personal business owners. They owned the boats. They employed the crew. But when there were centurions on board, the centurions were in charge. They they owned, the ships were owned by businessmen, sailed by sailors, but they were commanded by Rome. So the sailors... There's Roman soldiers. And finally, there's the passengers. And in this case, the passengers were prisoners, right? Most commentators agree that if they were boarding this ship bound for Rome, then it's likely that they had already been sentenced for death and they were being sent to Rome to compete in the relentless need for bodies destined for death in the Roman amphitheaters. The prisoners, they're on a boat going for Rome, but they're not going for Rome because they want to be there. They're going for Rome because they're going to be fodder for the lions and for the gladiators and for whatever else. I mean, this isn't exactly a coherent group of people, right? You're not thinking it's going to be a good vibe on that ship, right? Soldiers, sailors, and prisoners. A whole host of them are now bound to die in a storm or they're bound to die at the end of a spear. And so the sailors lure a boat in an attempt to make their escape. That's what it says. And of course they did, right? They're trying to take their chances. They're the only ones actually probably know how to do it on the boat, right? So they're trying to lure this lifeboat. They're thinking, I'm going to take my chance in the middle of this. They've been luring these anchors. It says they lure four of them. What happens is they lure one. They let it take the strain until like the anchor can't take anymore. They cut it. They lure another. They're trying to, they're trying to slow the boat down. They've done that four times and they've been trusted with that as a job. So now they're thinking, hey, I'm just luring, I'm luring another anchor over here, right? But they're actually luring the lifeboat to get off the boat, right? They're taking their chance. They're trying to get out of there. And Paul spots it, speaks to the centurion, he brings them back. And then he does this amazing thing. He cuts away the lifeboat. I mean, think about that for a second. He cuts away their only lifeline from the boat. It always struck me as a drastic response, because now what are they doing? They're committing themselves all to the word that Paul has given them. They're all in or no one survives. And they need to commit to one another. But then when I think about the position that we're in now, right? Post-pandemic, life coming back to normal, all of the changes that we have all been through over the last number of years, that's us too, right? The call on us, the church, to be all in and for one another is with us today, isn't it? The thing is that in that, in the moment that we're in, I don't think it's ever been so important. In lots of ways, the last two years of lockdown and isolation, it has changed things for lots of us, hasn't it? 
It's changed priorities. It's changed habits. And for lots of us, being together has been a difficult adjustment, right? Coming back out of lockdown, if I, as, as a church leader, if I heard one more person saying something on the lines of, it's great. I don't even have to get out of my pajamas. I can just watch church online. I'm like, I would like to kill you right now, right? The lure of like church at home in your slippers with your cup of coffee. There's no hassle or like people not like, like, you know, I get it. The lure is strong, right? So attendance habits change. Commitment levels wane. And maybe even your heart for the church has changed. And this is the reminder. That in the challenges of our lives today, we need to commit to courage, yes. But we need to commit to one another. The only way we make it through the storm is if we commit to one another. That we become a people all in for each other or the danger is that we reach no one. Community is not even about what you get. It's about what you give. It's about what you contribute to community, not what you receive. Yes, you receive, but it's about what you give, not what you get. You see, people trying to escape the boat that day were sailors, okay? That's important to remember. Remember I said there were sailors, soldiers, prisoners. The people trying to escape, they were sailors. Why is that significant? It's significant because they were the only ones who knew how to sail the ship. And if they had any hope of navigating at all through the storm, the reality is they would all need them. None of them make it if they get off. Here's the question I want to ask. What do we, this community, lack if you get off? What do we lack? What do we lose if you get off? If you aren't here, who doesn't make it? And who do we not reach in Belfast? We need to commit to one another. This community needs you, not because you're a bum on a seat, not because you're a line in our finances in terms of your giving or a serving position filled. This community needs you because that world out there needs you. And so we need to commit to courage, yes, but we need to commit to one another. If we want to be a transformative presence in the city, then our courage, our trust is obvious in our commitment to one another, especially in the storms. John Tyson would write this. All great revivals have taken place in times of decline. Resurrection is found among the dead. I want to call you to resist compromise when your friends tell you your faith is too intense, your devotion unnecessary, your life together too much. We need a commitment to one another if we're going to reach the city and be a transformative presence here. Don't get off. Dig in. And finally... Paul talks about a commitment to be sustained. This is what it says in verses 33 to 38. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive, but not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread. He gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and he began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they'd eaten as much as they had wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And so, in the reality of life on board, uh, it's been that as they've made their way through the storm, no one's eaten for two weeks, right? 
Paul says they've been in constant suspense is the, is the line in the NIV translation. We can put together a pretty good picture of what constant suspense means, how that manifested, right? It manifests in anxiety, fear, probably seasickness, bad conditions which made it impossible to prepare food, and, and food just being the last thing on their mind. One of the wonders of Paul's life, whenever you read through the letters that he's written and what we have in terms of all the things that he's contributed to our understanding of faith, right? It's a wonder that Paul, who demonstrates himself to be somebody so very spiritual, right, is also so very practical, isn't he? So very spiritual, but so very practical. I mean, his is the word he shares. God gave me a word, an angel appeared to me. I'm sharing it with you, right? You're thinking, this a spiritual guy on board. But the next line, it's a very practical guy on board. He knows that a crew that is starving is no use for the challenges that are ahead. And so he tells them to eat, and they do. And they were all encouraged, is what it says. Now, the word encouraged is actually exactly the same word that appears in verse 22 and 25 that I've just said, where courage or take heart. It's the same word. In other words, they ate and they took heart. And this wasn't communion, okay? I know there's that bit where he blessed it and he broke the bread, okay? Much ink has been spilt from various theologians about this particular topic. It wasn't communion. I'm going to save you all the time of reading it, okay? It's not communion that they're taking in that moment, but also something important, and yet still something spiritual is happening here, isn't it? Because he blesses that which they have, and they eat it, and it feeds them, not just body, but soul, doesn't it? We have this incredible ability in life to over-spiritualize some things and under-spiritualize others. Like this isn't a godly thing just because he's given them food to eat, right? But it is. And part of Paul's word to them was, you need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. There's this individuality to what Paul says to them, isn't it? Like the God who knows the hairs on your head says you won't lose one single one of them. The God that knows the details of your life. The God that knows the circumstances that you're in. The God that knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. The God that knows your innermost thoughts. That God, the one who knows the hair in your head. He says you won't lose one single one. He knows what they need. The thing is that the list of reasons for why they hadn't eaten, it reads a bit like a list of reasons for why we don't take care of ourselves either, doesn't it? Fear. Anxiety. Conditions, life circumstances, just didn't have time. It reads like the list of reasons why we don't look after ourselves either, doesn't it? And our sense of self-care goes out the window in the storm, doesn't it? When life gets busy, when accounts have to be published, when it's like a hectic season of your working schedule, when uni exams and hand-ins are coming, when the pressure is on in our lives, our self-care tends to go out the window. And I recognize at this point, you probably think I'm speaking more as a self-help leader than a church leader, right? But go with me for a second, okay? One of the threads that joins this whole chapter together is the word for saved, okay? We translate it as saved, but it it has, you know, you can say it different ways, but it's the word for saved, okay? And it actually appears five times throughout this passage, okay? In verse 20, the storm is so bad, they gave up all hope of being saved. In verse 31, unless they commit together, they cannot be saved. Verse 43, the centurion saves Paul. Verse 44, they are all saved. Verse 34, the part that we just read, take food or you cannot be saved. In other words, the practical of your life 
the sustaining that they needed and that we all need. It is important for God's plan and purposes to be worked out in your life. Paul says they can't be saved if they don't take on food. And I want to say that to us today, right? We will not fully be able to participate in God's plan and purposes for our lives and therefore his plan and purposes for the city and for the world if we do not learn to sustain and take care of ourselves. Whatever that looks like for you. Writing in the New York Times, a Yale psychology professor called Laurie Santos, she wrote this, our minds lie to us. We have a strong intuitions about the things that make us happy. And we use those intuitions to go after that stuff, whether it's more money or changing circumstances or buying the new iPhone. But a lot of those intuitions the science shows are not exactly right or are deeply misguided. That's why we get it wrong. I know this stuff, but my instincts are totally wrong. In other words, so often what we tell ourselves we need, what our feelings dictate, they're lies, right? So when you have a really bad day, a really difficult time at work, you're going through a really stressful time, what do you want to do? Go home, binge watch Netflix and eat ice cream, right? Or take away, right? It's, oh, I just want, just want take away tonight, right? But is that what you need? No, of course it's not. What you need is a conversation with somebody you love. What you need is a walk to get your body going. What you tell yourself you need is very not what you often do need. We often need way beyond just what we feel. And yet we tend to go after the surface level with our lives, don't we? God says not a single hair will be lost on your head. So be sustained with what you need. We need to trust. We need to commit to one another. And we need to do and be and receive the things that sustain us. Who said it? Paul did. Man of God, man of action. 276 people encouraged in a storm. And in the end, 276 people saved. Does your life cause the world around you to take heart? That's the question I'm asking myself this morning as I read about how Paul made his way through the storm. His voice was the one that changed everything for that whole ship. There was no earthly reason. There were no circumstances. There was nothing happening that would be the reason for any of them to take heart except for Paul's word to them. Does your life cause your world to take heart?